Life, the Universe and Everything by Douglas Adams Read by Martin Freeman Chapter 1 The regular early morning yell of horror was the sound of Arthur Dent waking up and suddenly remembering where he was. It wasn't just that the cave was cold. It wasn't just that it was damp and smelly. It was the fact that the cave was in the middle of Islington and there wasn't a bus due for two million years. Time is the worst place, so to speak, to get lost in, as Arthur Dent could testify, having been lost in both time and space a good deal. At least being lost in space kept you busy. He was stranded in prehistoric Earth as the result of a complex sequence of events which had involved him being alternately blown up and insulted in more bizarre regions of the galaxy than he had ever dreamt existed. And though life had now turned very, very, very quiet, he was still feeling jumpy. He hadn't been blown up now for five years. Since he had hardly seen anyone since he and Ford Prefect had parted company four years previously, he hadn't been insulted in all that time either. Except just once. It had happened on a spring evening about two years previously. He was returning to his cave just a little after dusk when he became aware of lights flashing eerily through the clouds. He turned and stared, with hope suddenly clambering through his heart. Rescue. Escape. The castaway's impossible dream. A ship. And as he watched... As he stared in wonder and excitement, a long silver ship descended through the warm evening air, quietly, without fuss, its long legs unlocking in a smooth ballet of technology. It alighted gently on the ground, and what little hum it had generated died away, as if lulled by the evening calm. A ramp extended itself. Light streamed out. A tall figure appeared silhouetted in the hatchway, it walked down the ramp and stood in front of Arthur. You're a jerk, Dent, it said simply. It was alien. Very alien. It had a peculiar alien tallness, a peculiar alien flattened head, peculiar slitty little alien eyes, extravagantly draped golden robes with a peculiarly alien collar design and pale grey-green alien skin which had about it that lustrous sheen which most grey-green faces can only acquire with plenty of exercise and very expensive soap. Arthur boggled at it. It gazed levelly at him. Arthur's first sensations of hope and trepidation had instantly been overwhelmed by astonishment, and all sorts of thoughts were battling for the use of his vocal cords at this moment. What? he said. But... Uh, uh, he added. He managed finally to say, and lapsed into a frantic kind of silence. He was feeling the effects of having not said anything to anybody for as long as he could remember. The alien creature frowned briefly and consulted what appeared to be some species of clipboard which he was holding in his thin and spindly alien hand. Arthur Dent, it said. Arthur nodded helplessly. Arthur Philip Dent pursued the alien in a kind of efficient yap. Uh, 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 yes, uh, uh, confirmed Arthur. You're a jerk, 
repeated the alien. A complete asshole. Uh The creature nodded to itself, made a peculiar alien tick on its clipboard, and turned briskly back towards its ship. Uh said Arthur desperately. Uh Don't give me that, snapped the alien. It marched up the ramp, through the hatchway, and disappeared into its ship. The ship sealed itself. It started to make a low, throbbing hum. Uh, hey! shouted Arthur, and started to run helplessly towards it. Wait a minute, he called. What, what is this? What? Wait a minute! The ship rose, as if shedding its weight like a cloak to the ground, and hovered briefly. It swept strangely up into the evening sky. It passed up through the clouds, illuminating them briefly, and then was gone leaving Arthur alone in an immensity of land dancing a helplessly tiny little dance. What? he screamed. What? What? Hey, what? Come back here and say that! He jumped and danced until his legs trembled and shouted till his lungs rasped. There was no answer from anyone. There was no one to hear him or speak to him. The alien ship was already thundering towards the upper reaches of the atmosphere, on its way out into the appalling void which separates the very few things there are in the universe from each other. Its occupant, the alien with the expensive complexion, leaned back in its single seat. His name was Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged. He was a man with a purpose. Not a very good purpose, as he would have been the first to admit, but it was at least a purpose, and it did at least keep him on the move. Wowbagger the Infinitely Prolonged was, indeed is, one of the universe's very small number of immortal beings. Those who are born immortal instinctively know how to cope with it, but Wowbagger was not one of them. Indeed, he had come to hate them, the load of serene bastards. He had had his immortality inadvertently thrust upon him by an unfortunate accident with an irrational particle accelerator, a liquid lunch and a pair of rubber bands. The precise details of the accident are not important because no one has ever managed to duplicate the exact circumstances under which it happened and many people have ended up looking very silly, or dead, or both, trying. Wowbagger closed his eyes in a grim and weary expression, put some light jazz on the ship's stereo and reflected that he could have made it if it hadn't been for Sunday afternoons, he really could have done. To begin with, it was fun. He had a ball, living dangerously, taking risks, cleaning up on high-yield, long-term investments, and just generally outliving the hell out of everybody. In the end, it was the Sunday afternoons he couldn't cope with, and that terrible listlessness which starts to set in at about 2.55, when you know that you've had all the baths you can usefully have that day, that however hard you stare at any given paragraph in the papers, you will never actually read it, or use the revolutionary new pruning technique it describes, and that as you stare at the clock, the hands will move relentlessly on to four o'clock, and you will enter the long, dark tea time of the soul. So things began to pall for him. The merry smiles he used to wear at other people's funerals began to fade. He began to despise the universe in general, and everybody in it in particular. This was the point at which he conceived his purpose, the thing which would drive him on, and which, as far as he could see, would drive him on forever. It was this. He would insult the universe. That is, he would insult everybody in it. Individually, personally, 
one by one, and this was the thing he really decided to grit his teeth over, in alphabetical order. When people protested to him, as they sometimes had done, that the plan was not merely misguided, but actually impossible because of the number of people being born and dying all the time, he would merely fix them with a steely look and say, A man can dream, can't he? And so he had started out. He equipped a spaceship that was built to last with a computer capable of handling all the data processing involved in keeping track of the entire population of the known universe and working out the horrifically complicated routes involved. His ship fled through the inner orbits of the Sol star system, preparing to slingshot round the sun and fling itself out into interstellar space. Computer, he said. Here, yipped the computer. Where next? Computing that. Wowbagger gazed for a moment at the fantastic jewellery of the night, the billions of tiny diamond worlds that dusted the infinite darkness with light. Every one, every single one, was on his itinerary. Most of them he would be going to millions of times over. He imagined for a moment his itinerary connecting up all the dots in the sky like a child's numbered dots puzzle. He hoped that from some vantage point in the universe it might be seen to spell a very, very rude word. The computer beeped tunelessly to indicate that it had finished its calculations. Folfanger, it said. It beeped. Fourth world of the Folfanger system, it continued. It beeped again. Estimated journey time, three weeks, it continued further. It beeped again. There to meet with a small slug, it beeped, of the genus A-Arth-Erp-Hill-Ipdenu. I believe, it added after a slight pause during which it beeped, that you had decided to call it a brainless prat. Wowbagger grunted. He watched the majesty of creation outside his window for a moment or two. I think I'll take a nap, he said, and then added, What network areas are we going to be passing through in the next few hours? The computer beeped. Cosmovid? Think pics and home brain box, it said, and beeped. Any movies I haven't seen 30,000 times already? No. Ah. There's angst in space. You've only seen that 33,517 times. Wake me for the second reel. The computer beeped. Sleep well, it said. The ship fled on through the night. Meanwhile, on Earth, it began to pour with rain and Arthur Dent sat in his cave and had one of the most truly rotten evenings of his entire life, thinking of things he could have said to the alien and swatting flies, who also had a rotten evening. The next day, he made himself a pouch out of rabbit skin because he thought it would be useful to keep things in. Chapter 2 This morning, two years later than that, was sweet and fragrant as he emerged from the cave he called home until he could think of a better name for it or find a better cave. Though his throat was sore again from his early morning yell of horror, he was suddenly in a terrifically good mood. He wrapped his dilapidated dressing gown tightly around him and beamed at the bright morning. The air was clear and scented. The breeze flitted lightly through the tall grass around his cave. The birds were chirruping at each other the butterflies were flitting about prettily, and the whole of nature seemed to be conspiring to be as pleasant as it possibly could. It wasn't all the pastoral delights that were making Arthur feel so cheery, though. 
He had just had a wonderful idea about how to cope with the terrible lonely isolation, the nightmares, the failure of all his attempts at horticulture, and the sheer futurelessness and futility of his life here on prehistoric Earth, which was that he would go mad. He beamed again and took a bite out of a rabbit leg left over from his supper. He chewed happily for a few moments and then decided formally to announce his decision. He stood up straight and looked the world squarely in the fields and hills. To add weight to his words, he stuck the rabbit bone in his beard. He spread his arms out wide. I will go mad, he announced. Good idea, said Ford Prefect, clambering down from the rock on which he had been sitting. Arthur's brain somersaulted. His jaw did press-ups. I went mad for a while, said Ford. Did me no end of good. Arthur's eyes did cartwheels. You see, said Ford. Where have you been? interrupted Arthur, now that his head had finished working out. Around, said Ford. Around and about. He grinned in what he accurately judged to be an infuriating manner. I just took my mind off the hook for a bit. I reckoned that if the world wanted me badly enough, it would call back. It did. He took out of his now terribly battered and dilapidated satchel his sub-ether sensomatic. At least, he said, I think it did. This has been playing up a bit. He shook it. If it was a false alarm, I shall go mad, he said. Again. Arthur shook his head and sat down. He looked up. I thought you must be dead, he said simply. Well, so did I for a while, said Ford, and then I decided I was a lemon for a couple of weeks. I kept myself amused all that time, jumping in and out of a gin and tonic. Arthur cleared his throat and then did it again. Where, he said, did you find the gin and tonic, said Ford brightly. I found a small lake that thought it was a gin and tonic and jumped in and out of that. At least I think it thought it was a gin and tonic. I may, he added, with a grin which would have sent sane men scampering into trees, have been imagining it. He waited for a reaction from Arthur, but Arthur knew better than that. Carry on, he said evenly. The point is, you see, said Ford, that there is no point in driving yourself mad, trying to stop yourself going mad. You might just as well give in and save your sanity for later. And this is you sane again, is it? said Arthur. I ask merely for information. I went to Africa, said Ford. Yes? Yes. What was that like? And this is your cave, is it? said Ford. Uh, yes, said Arthur. He felt very strange. After nearly four years of total isolation, he was so pleased and relieved to see Ford that he could almost cry. Ford was, on the other hand, an almost immediately annoying person. Very nice, said Ford, in reference to Arthur's cave. You must hate it. Arthur didn't bother to reply. Africa was very interesting, said Ford. I behaved very oddly there. He gazed thoughtfully into the distance. I took up being cruel to animals, he said airily, but only, he added, as a hobby. Oh, yes, said Arthur, warily. Yes, Ford assured him. I won't disturb you with the details, because they would... What? disturb you. But you may be interested to know that I am single-handedly responsible for the evolved shape of the animal you came to know in later centuries as a giraffe. And I tried to learn to fly. Do you believe me? Tell me, said Arthur. I'll tell you later. I'll just mention that the guide says the guide, the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy, you remember? Yes, 
I remember throwing it in the river. Yes, said Ford, but I fished it out. You didn't tell me. I didn't want you to throw it in again. Fair enough, admitted Arthur. It says... What? The guide says... Oh, the guide says that there is an art to flying, said Ford, or rather a knack. The knack lies in learning how to throw yourself at the ground and miss. He smiled weakly. He pointed at the knees of his trousers and held his arms up to show the elbows. They were all torn and worn through. I haven't done very well so far, he said. He stuck out his hand. I'm very glad to see you again, Arthur, he added. Arthur shook his head in a sudden access of emotion and bewilderment. I haven't seen anyone for years, he said. Not anyone. I can hardly even remember how to speak. I keep forgetting words. I practice, you see. I practice by talking to... Talking to... What are those things people think you're mad if you talk to, like George III? Kings? suggested Ford. No, no, said Arthur. The things he used to talk to, we're surrounded by them, for heaven's sake. I've planted hundreds myself. They all died. Trees! I practice by talking to trees. What's that for? Ford still had his hand stuck out. Arthur looked at it with incomprehension. Shake! prompted Ford. Arthur did. Nervously at first, as if it might turn out to be a fish. Then he grasped it vigorously with both hands in an overwhelming flood of relief. He shook it and shook it. After a while, Ford found it necessary to disengage. They climbed to the top of a nearby outcrop of rock and surveyed the scene around them. What happened to the Golga Frinchians? asked Ford. Arthur shrugged. A lot of them didn't make it through the winter three years ago, he said, and the few who remained in the spring said they needed a holiday and set off on a raft. History says that they must have survived. Ha! said Ford. Well, well. He stuck his hands on his hips and looked round again at the empty world. Suddenly, there was about Ford a sense of energy and purpose. We're going, he said excitedly, and shivered with energy. Where, how, said Arthur. I don't know, said Ford, but I just feel that the time is right. Things are going to happen. We're on our way. He lowered his voice to a whisper. I have detected, he said, disturbances in the wash. He gazed keenly into the distance and looked as if he would quite like the wind to blow his hair back dramatically at that point, but the wind was busy fooling around with some leaves a little way off. Arthur asked him to repeat what he had just said because he hadn't quite taken his meaning. Ford repeated it. The wash, said Arthur. The space-time wash, said Ford, and as the wind blew briefly past at that moment, he bared his teeth into it. Arthur nodded and then cleared his throat. Are we talking about, he asked cautiously, some sort of Vogon laundromat, or what are we talking about? Eddies, said Ford, in the space-time continuum. Ah, nodded Arthur, is he? Is he? He pushed his hands into the pocket of his dressing gown and looked knowledgeably into the distance. What? said Ford. Uh, who, said Arthur, is Eddie, then, exactly, then... Ford looked angrily at him. Will you listen? he snapped. I have been listening, said Arthur, but I'm not sure it's helped. Ford grasped him by the lapels of his dressing gown and spoke to him as slowly and distinctly and patiently as if he was somebody from a telephone company accounts department. There seem, 
he said, to be some pools, he said, of instability, he said, in the fabric, he said. Arthur looked foolishly at the cloth of his dressing gown where Ford was holding it. Ford swept on before Arthur could turn the foolish look into a foolish remark. In the fabric of space-time, he said. Ah, that, said Arthur. Yes, that, confirmed Ford. They stood there alone on a hill on prehistoric earth and stared each other resolutely in the face. And it's done what, said Arthur. It, said Ford, has developed pools of instability. Has it, said Arthur, his eyes not wavering for a moment. It has, said Ford, with a similar degree of ocular immobility. Good, said Arthur. See, said Ford. No, said Arthur. There was a quiet pause. The difficulty with this conversation, said Arthur, after a sort of pondering look had crawled slowly across his face like a mountaineer negotiating a tricky outcrop, is that it's very different from most of the ones I've had of late, which, as I explained, have mostly been with trees. They weren't like this, except perhaps some of the ones I've had with elms, which sometimes got a bit bogged down. Arthur, said Ford. Hello, yes, said Arthur. Just believe everything I tell you, and it will all be very, very simple. Ah, well, I'm not sure I believe that. They sat down and composed their thoughts. Ford got out his sub-ether sensomatic. It was making vague humming noises, and a tiny light on it was flickering faintly. Flat battery, said Arthur. No, said Ford. There is a moving disturbance in the fabric of space-time, an eddy, a pool of instability, and it's somewhere in our vicinity. Where? Ford moved the device in a slow, lightly bobbing semicircle. Suddenly the light flashed. There! said Ford, shooting out his arm. There! Behind that sofa! Arthur looked. Much to his surprise, there was a velvet paisley-covered Chesterfield sofa in the field in front of them. He boggled intelligently at it. Shrewd questions sprang into his mind. Why, he said, is there a sofa in that field? I told you, shouted Ford, leaping to his feet. Eddie's in the space-time continuum! And this is his sofa, is it? asked Arthur, struggling to his feet and, he hoped, though not very optimistically, to his senses. Arthur! shouted Ford at him. That sofa is there because of the space-time instability I've been trying to get your terminally softened brain to get to grips with. It's been washed up out of the continuum. It's space-time jetsam. It doesn't matter what it is, we've got to catch it. It's our only way out of here. He scrambled rapidly down the rocky outcrop and made off across the field. Catch it, muttered Arthur, then frowned in bemusement as he saw that the Chesterfield was lazily bobbing and wafting away across the grass. With a whoop of utterly unexpected delight, he leapt down the rock and plunged off in hectic pursuit of Ford Prefect and the irrational piece of furniture. They careered wildly through the grass, leaping, laughing, shouting instructions to each other to head the thing off this way or that way. The sun shone dreamily on the swaying grass, tiny field animals scattered crazily in their wake. Arthur felt happy. He was terribly pleased that the day was for once working out so much according to plan. Only twenty minutes ago he had decided he would go mad, and now here he was already chasing a sofa across the fields of prehistoric earth.
The sofa bobbed this way and that, and seemed simultaneously to be as solid as the trees as it drifted past some of them, and hazy as a billowing dream as it floated like a ghost through others. Ford and Arthur pounded chaotically after it, but it dodged and weaved as if following its own complex mathematical topography, which it was. Still they pursued, still it danced and span, and suddenly turned and dipped as if crossing the lip of a catastrophe graph, and they were practically on top of it. With a heave and a shout, they kept on it. The sun winked out, they fell through a sickening nothingness, and emerged unexpectedly in the middle of the pitch at Lord's Cricket Ground, St John's Wood, London, towards the end of the last test match of the Australian series in the year 1980-something, with England needing only 28 runs to win. Chapter 3 Important Facts from Galactic History Number 1 Reproduced from the Sidereal Daily Mentioner's Book of Popular Galactic History The night sky over the planet Cricket is the least interesting sight in the entire universe. Chapter 4 It was a charming and delightful day at Lord's, as Ford and Arthur tumbled haphazardly out of a space-time anomaly and hit the immaculate turf rather hard. The applause of the crowd was tremendous. It wasn't for them, but instinctively they bowed anyway which was fortunate because the small red heavy ball which the crowd actually had been applauding whistled mere millimetres over Arthur's head. In the crowd, a man collapsed. They threw themselves back to the ground which seemed to spin hideously around them. What was that? hissed Arthur. Something red! hissed Ford back at him. Where are we? Ah, uh, somewhere green! Shapes! muttered Arthur. I need shapes! The applause of the crowd had been rapidly succeeded by gasps of astonishment, and the awkward titters of hundreds of people who could not yet make up their minds about whether to believe what they had just seen or not. "'This your sofa?' said a voice. "'What was that?' whispered Ford. Arthur looked up. "'Something blue,' he said. "'Shape?' said Ford. Arthur looked again. "'It is shaped,' he hissed at Ford, with his brow savagely furrowed, like a policeman. They remained crouched there for a few moments, frowning deeply. The blue thing, shaped like a policeman, tapped them both on the shoulders. Come on, you two, the shape said. Let's be having you. These words had an electrifying effect on Arthur. He leapt to his feet like an author, hearing the phone ring, and shot a series of startled glances at the panorama around him, which had suddenly settled down into something of quite terrifying ordinariness. Where did you get this from? he yelled at the policeman's shape. What did you say? said the startled shape. This is Lord's cricket ground, isn't it? snapped Arthur. Where did you find it? How did you get it here? I think, he added, clasping his hand to his brow, that I had better calm down. He squatted down abruptly in front of Ford. It is a policeman, he said. What do we do? Ford shrugged. What do you want to do? he said. I want you, said Arthur, to tell me that I've been dreaming for the last five years. Ford shrugged again and obliged. You've been dreaming for the last five years, he said. Arthur got to his feet. It's all right, officer, he said. I've been dreaming for the last five years. Ask him, he added, pointing at Ford. He was in it. Having said this, he sauntered off towards the edge of the pitch, brushing down his dressing gown. He then noticed his dressing gown and stopped. He stared at it. He flung himself at the policeman. So where did I get these clothes from, he howled. He collapsed and lay twitching on the grass. Ford shook his head. 
He's had a bad two million years, he said to the policeman, and together they heaved Arthur onto the sofa and carried him off the pitch and were only briefly hampered by the sudden disappearance of the sofa on the way. Reactions to all this from the crowd were many and various. Most of them couldn't cope with watching it and listened to it on the radio instead. Well, this is an interesting incident, Brian, said one radio commentator to another. I don't think there have been any mysterious materialisations on the pitch since, um, oh, since, well, I don't think there have been any, have there, that I recall? Edgebuston, 1932? Ah, now, what happened then? Well, Peter, I think it was Cantor facing Wilcox coming up to bowl from the pavilion end when a spectator suddenly ran straight across the pitch. There was a pause whilst the first commentator considered this. Yes, he said. Yes, there's nothing actually very mysterious about that, is there? He didn't actually materialise, did he? Just ran on. No, that's true, but he did claim to have seen something materialise on the pitch. Ah, did he? Yes, an alligator, I think, of some description. Ah, and had anyone else noticed it? Apparently not, and no one was able to get a very detailed description from him, so only the most perfunctory search was made. And what happened to the man? Well, I think someone offered to take him off and give him some lunch, but he explained that he'd already had a rather good one, so the matter was dropped, and Warwickshire went on to win by three wickets. So, not very like this current instance. For those of you who've just tuned in, you may be interested to know that uh, two men, two rather scruffily attired men, and indeed a sofa, a Chesterfield, I think, yes, a Chesterfield, have just materialised here in the middle of Lord's Cricket Ground, but I don't think they meant any harm. They've been very good-natured about it, and... Sorry, can I interrupt you a moment, Peter, and say that the sofa has just vanished? Oh, so it has. Well, that's one mystery less. Still, it's definitely one for the record books, I think, particularly occurring at this dramatic moment in play. England now needing only 24 runs to win the series. The men are leaving the pitch in the company of a police officer, and I think everyone's settling down now, and play is about to resume. Now, sir, said the policeman, after they had made a passage through the curious crowd and laid Arthur's peacefully inert body on a blanket... Perhaps you'd care to tell me who you are, where you come from, and what that little scene was all about. Ford looked at the ground for a moment, as if steadying himself for something. Then he straightened up and aimed a look at the policeman, which hit him with the full force of every inch of the six light-years distance between Earth and Ford's home near Beetlejuice. All right, said Ford, very quietly. I'll tell you. Yes, well, that won't be necessary, said the policeman hurriedly. Just don't let whatever it was happen again. The policeman turned around and wandered off in search of anyone who wasn't from Beetlejuice. Fortunately, the crowd was full of them. Arthur's consciousness approached his body, as from a great distance, and reluctantly. It had had some bad times in there. Slowly, nervously, it entered and settled down into its accustomed position. Arthur sat up. "'Where am I?' he said. "'Lord's Cricket Ground,' said Ford. "'Fine,' said Arthur.' and his consciousness stepped out again for a quick breather. His body flopped back on the grass. Ten minutes later, hunched over a cup of tea in the refreshment tent, the colour started to come back to his haggard face. "'How are you feeling?' said Ford. "'I'm home,' said Arthur hoarsely. 
He closed his eyes and greedily inhaled a steam from his tea as if it was... Well, as far as Arthur was concerned, as if it was tea, which it was. I'm home, he repeated. Home? It's England. It's today the nightmare is over. He opened his eyes again and smiled serenely. I'm where I belong, he said in an emotional whisper. There are two things I feel I should tell you, said Ford, tossing a copy of The Guardian over the table at him. I'm home, said Arthur. Yes, said Ford. One is, he said, pointing at the date at the top of the paper, that the earth will be demolished in two days' time. I'm home, said Arthur. Tea, he said. Cricket, he added with pleasure. Moan grass, wooden benches, white linen jackets, beer cans. Slowly he began to focus on the newspaper. He cocked his head on one side with a slight frown. I've seen that one before, he said. His eyes wandered slowly up to the date, which Ford was idly tapping at. His face froze for a second or two, and then began to do that terribly slow crashing trick which Arctic ice flows do so spectacularly in the spring. And the other thing, said Ford, is that you appear to have a bone in your beard. He tossed back his tea. Outside the refreshment tent, the sun was shining on a happy crowd. It shone on white hats and red faces. It shone on ice lollies and melted them. It shone on the tears of small children whose ice lollies had just melted and fallen off the stick. It shone on the trees. It flashed off whirling cricket bats. It gleamed off the utterly extraordinary object which was parked behind the sight screens and which nobody appeared to have noticed. It beamed on Ford and Arthur as they emerged blinking from the refreshment tent and surveyed the scene around them. Arthur was shaking. Perhaps, he said, I should... No, said Ford sharply. What? said Arthur. Don't try and phone yourself up at home. How did you know? Ford shrugged. But why not? said Arthur. People who talk to themselves on the phone, said Ford, never learn anything to their advantage. Look, said Ford. He picked up an imaginary phone and dialed an imaginary dial. Hello, he said into the imaginary mouthpiece. Is that Arthur Dent? Ah, hello, yes. This is Arthur Dent speaking. Don't hang up. He looked at the imaginary phone in disappointment. He hung up, he said, shrugged and put the imaginary phone neatly back on its imaginary hook. This is not my first temporal anomaly, he added. A glummer look replaced the already glum look on Arthur Dent's face. So we're not home and dry, he said. We could not even be said, replied Ford, to be home and vigorously toweling ourselves off. The game continued. The bowler approached the wicket at a lope, a trot and then a run. He suddenly exploded in a flurry of arms and legs, out of which flew a ball. The batsman swung and thwacked it behind him over the sight screens. Ford's eyes followed the trajectory of the ball and jagged momentarily. He stiffened. He looked along the flight path of the ball again, and his eyes twitched again. This isn't my towel, said Arthur, who was rummaging in his rabbit skin bag. Shh, said Ford. He screwed his eyes up in concentration. I had a Golgofrinchian jogging towel, continued Arthur. It was blue with yellow stars on it. This isn't it. Shh, said Ford again. He covered one eye and looked with the other. 
This one's pink, said Arthur. It isn't yours, is it? I would like you to shut up about your towel, said Ford. It isn't my towel, insisted Arthur. That is the point I am trying to... And the time at which I would like you to shut up about it, continued Ford in a low growl, is now. All right, said Arthur, starting to stuff it back into the primitively stitched rabbit skin bag. I realise that it is probably not important in the cosmic scale of things. It's just odd, that's all. A pink towel suddenly, instead of a blue one with yellow stars. Ford was beginning to behave rather strangely, or rather not actually beginning to behave strangely, but beginning to behave in a way which was strangely different from the other strange ways in which he more regularly behaved. What he was doing was this. Regardless of the bemused stares it was provoking from his fellow members of the crowd gathered round the pitch, he was waving his hands in sharp movements across his face, ducking down behind some people, leaping up behind others, then standing still and blinking a lot. After a moment or two of this, he started to stalk forward slowly and stealthily wearing a puzzled frown of concentration, like a leopard that is not sure whether it's just seen a half-empty tin of cat food half a mile away across a hot and dusty plain. This isn't my bag either, said Arthur suddenly. Ford's spell of concentration was broken. He turned angrily on Arthur. I wasn't talking about my towel, said Arthur. We've established that that isn't mine. It's just that the bag into which I was putting the towel, which is not mine, is also not mine, though it is extraordinarily similar. Now, personally, I think that that is extremely odd, especially as the bag was one I made myself on prehistoric Earth. These are also not my stones, he added, pulling a few flat grey stones out of the bag. I was making a collection of interesting stones, and these are clearly very dull ones. A roar of excitement thrilled through the crowd and obliterated whatever it was that Ford said in reply to this piece of information. The cricket ball which had excited this reaction fell out of the sky and dropped neatly into Arthur's mysterious rabbit-skin bag. Now, I would say that that was also a very curious event, said Arthur, rapidly closing the bag and pretending to look for the ball on the ground. I don't think it's here, he said to the small boys who immediately clustered round him to join in the search. It probably rolled off somewhere, over there, I expect. He pointed vaguely in the direction in which he wished they would push off. One of the boys looked at him quizzically. You all right? said the boy. No, said Arthur. Then why you got a bone in your beard? said the boy. I'm training it to like being wherever it's put. Arthur prided himself on saying this. It was, he thought, exactly the sort of thing which would entertain and stimulate young minds. Oh, said the small boy, putting his head on one side and thinking about it. What's your name? Dent, said Arthur. Arthur Dent. You're a jerk, Dent, said the boy. A complete arsehole. The boy looked past him at something else to show that he wasn't in any particular hurry to run away, and then wandered off, scratching his nose. Suddenly, Arthur remembered that the earth was going to be demolished again in two days' time, and just this once didn't feel too bad about it. Play resumed with a new ball, the sun continued to shine, and Ford continued to jump up and down, shaking his head and blinking. "'Something's on your mind, isn't it?' said Arthur. "'I think,' said Ford, in a tone of voice which Arthur by now recognised as one which presaged utterly unintelligible, "'that there's an SEP over there.' He pointed. Curiously enough, the direction he pointed in was not the one in which he was looking. 
Arthur looked in the one direction, which was towards the sight screens, and in the other, which was at the field of play. He nodded. He shrugged. He shrugged again. A what? he said. An S-E-P. An S-E-P. And what's that? Somebody else's problem, said Ford. Ah, good, said Arthur, and relaxed. He had no idea what all that was about, but at best it seemed to be over. It wasn't. Over there, said Ford, again pointing at the sight screens and looking at the pitch. Where, said Arthur. There, said Ford. I see, said Arthur, who didn't. You do, said Ford. What, said Arthur. Can you see, said Ford patiently, the S-E-P? I thought you said that was someone else's problem. That's right. Arthur nodded slowly, carefully, and with an air of immense cupidity. And I want to know, said Ford, if you can see it. You do? Yes. What, said Arthur, does it look like? Well, how should I know, you fool, shouted Ford. If you can see it, you tell me. Arthur experienced that dull, throbbing sensation just behind the temples, which was a hallmark of so many of his conversations with Ford. His brain lurked like a frightened puppy in its kennel. Ford took him by the arm. An SEP, he said, is something that we can't see or don't see or our brain doesn't let us see because we think that it's somebody else's problem. That's what SEP means, somebody else's problem. The brain just edits it out. It's like a blind spot. If you look at it directly, you won't see it unless you know precisely what it is. Your only hope is to catch it by surprise out of the corner of your eye. Ah, said Arthur, then that's why... Yes, said Ford, who knew what Arthur was going to say. You've been jumping up and, yes, down and blinking. Yes, and I think you've got the message. I can see it, said Arthur. It's a spaceship. For a moment, Arthur was stunned by the reaction this revelation provoked. A roar erupted from the crowd and from every direction people were running, shouting, yelling, tumbling over each other in a tumult of confusion. He stumbled back in astonishment and glanced fearfully around. Then he glanced around again in even greater astonishment. Exciting, isn't it? said an apparition. The apparition wobbled in front of Arthur's eyes, though the truth of the matter is probably that Arthur's eyes were wobbling in front of the apparition. His mouth wobbled as well. His mouth said. I, I think your team have just won, said the apparition. "'repeated Arthur, and punctuated each wobble with a prod at Ford Prefect's back. "'Ford was staring at the tumult in trepidation. "'You are English, aren't you?' said the apparition. "'Yes,' said Arthur. "'Well, well, your team, as I say, have just won the match. "'It means they retain the ashes. You must be very pleased.' I must say I'm rather fond of cricket, though I wouldn't like anyone outside this planet to hear me saying that. Oh, dear, no. The apparition gave what looked as if it might have been a mischievous grin, but it was hard to tell because the sun was directly behind him, creating a blinding halo around his head and illuminating his silver hair and beard in a way which was awesome, dramatic and hard to reconcile with mischievous grins. Still, he said, it'll all be over in a couple of days, won't it? 
though as I said to you when we last met, I was very sorry about that. Still, whatever will have been, will have been. Arthur tried to speak, but gave up the unequal struggle. He prodded Ford again. I thought something terrible had happened, said Ford, but it's just the end of the game. We ought to get out. Oh, hello, Slarty Bartfast, what are you doing here? Oh, pottering, pottering, said the old man gravely. That your ship? Can you, can you give us a lift anywhere? Patience, patience, the old man admonished. OK, said Ford, it's just that this planet's going to be demolished pretty soon. I know that, said Slarty Bartfast. And, well, I just wanted to make that point, said Ford. The point is taken. And if you feel that you really want to hang around a cricket pitch at this point, I do. Then it's your ship. It is. I suppose Ford turned away sharply at this point. Hello, Slarty Bartfast, said Arthur at last. Hello, Earthman, said Slarty Bartfast. After all, said Ford, we can only die once. The old man ignored this and stared keenly onto the pitch, with eyes which seemed alive with expressions that had no apparent bearing on what was happening out there. What was happening was that the crowd was gathering itself into a wide circle round the centre of the pitch. What Slarty Bartfast saw in it, he alone knew. Ford was humming something. It was just one note repeated at intervals. He was hoping that somebody would ask him what he was humming, but nobody did. If anybody had asked him, he would have said that he was humming the first line of a Noel Coward song called Mad About the Boy over and over again. It would then have been pointed out to him that he was only singing one note, to which he would have replied that for reasons which he hoped would be apparent, he was omitting the About the Boy bit. He was annoyed that nobody asked. It's just, he burst out at last, that if we don't go soon we might get caught in the middle of it all again, and there's nothing that depresses me more than seeing a planet being destroyed, except possibly still being on it when it happens. Or, he added in an undertone, hanging around cricket matches. Patience, said Slarty Bartfast again. Great things are afoot. That's what you said last time we met, said Arthur. They were, said Slarty Bartfast. Yes, that's true, admitted Arthur. All, however, that seemed to be afoot was a ceremony of some kind. It was being specially staged for the benefit of TV rather than the spectators, and all they could gather about it from where they were standing was what they heard from a nearby radio. Ford was aggressively uninterested. He fretted as he heard it explained that the ashes were about to be presented to the captain of the English team out there on the pitch, fumed when told that this was because they had now won them for the nth time, positively barked with annoyance at the information that the ashes were the remains of a cricket stump, and when, further to this, he was asked to contend with the fact that the cricket stump in question had been burnt in Melbourne, Australia in 1882 to signify the death of English cricket, he rounded on Slarty Bartfast, took a deep breath, but didn't have a chance to say anything because the old man wasn't there. He was marching out onto the pitch with terrible purpose in his gait, his hair, beard and robes swept behind him, looking very much as Moses would have looked if Sinai had been a well-cut lawn instead of, as it is more usually represented, a fiery smoking mountain. He said to meet him at his ship, said Arthur. What in the name of Zarking Fardwarks is the old fool doing? exploded Ford. Meeting us at his ship in two minutes, said Arthur, with a shrug which indicated total abdication of thought. They started off towards it. 
strange sounds reached their ears. They tried not to listen, but could not help noticing that Slarty Bartfast was querulously demanding that he be given the silver urn containing the ashes, as they were, he said, vitally important for the past, present and future safety of the galaxy, and that this was causing wild hilarity. They resolved to ignore it. What happened next, they could not ignore. With a noise that sounded like a hundred thousand people saying, WOP, a steely white spaceship suddenly seemed to create itself out of nothing in the air directly above the cricket pitch and hung there with infinite menace and a slight hum. Then for a while, it did nothing, as if it expected everybody to go about their normal business and not mind it just hanging there. Then it did something quite extraordinary, or rather it opened up and let something quite extraordinary come out of it. Eleven quite extraordinary things. They were robots. White robots. What was most extraordinary about them was that they appeared to have come dressed for the occasion. Not only were they white, but they carried what appeared to be cricket bats, and not only that, but they also carried what appeared to be cricket balls, and not only that, but they wore white ribbing pads around the lower parts of their legs. These last were extraordinary because they appeared to contain jets which allowed these curiously civilised robots to fly down from their hovering spaceship and start to kill people, which is what they did. Hello, said Arthur. Something seems to be happening. Get to the ship, shouted Ford. I don't want to know, just get to the ship. He started to run. I don't want to know, I don't want to see, I don't want to hear, he yelled as he ran. This is not my planet, I didn't choose to be here, I don't want to get involved, just get me out of here and get me to a party with people I can relate to. Smoke and flame billowed from the pitch. Well, the supernatural brigade certainly seems to be out in force here today, burbled a radio happily to itself. What I need, shouted Ford by way of clarifying his previous remarks, is a strong drink and a peer group. He continued to run, pausing only for a moment to grab Arthur's arm and drag him along with him. Arthur had adopted his normal crisis role, which was to stand with his mouth hanging open and let it all wash over him. They're playing cricket, muttered Arthur, stumbling along after Ford. I swear they are playing cricket. I do not know why they are doing this, but that is what they are doing. They're not just killing people, they're sending them up, he shouted. Ford, they're sending us up! It would have been hard to disbelieve this without knowing a great deal more galactic history than Arthur had so far managed to pick up in his travels. The ghostly but violent shapes that could be seen moving within the thick pool of smoke seemed to be performing a series of bizarre parodies of batting strokes. The difference being that every ball they struck with their bats exploded wherever it landed. The very first one of these had dispelled Arthur's initial reaction that the whole thing might just be a publicity stunt by Australian margarine manufacturers. And then, as suddenly as it had all started, it was over. The eleven white robots ascended through the seething cloud in a tight formation and with a few last flashes of flame entered the bowels of their hovering white ship which, with the noise of a hundred thousand people saying foop, promptly vanished into the thin air out of which it had whopped. For a moment there was a terrible, stunned silence and then, out of the drifting smoke emerged the pale figure of Slarty Bartfast looking even more like Moses because in spite of the continued absence of the mountain, he was at least now striding across a fiery and smoking, well-mown lawn. 
he stared wildly about him until he saw the hurrying figures of Arthur Dent and Ford Prefect forcing their way through the frightened crowd, which was for the moment busy stampeding in the opposite direction. The crowd was clearly thinking to itself about what an unusual day this was turning out to be, and not really knowing which way, if any, to turn. Slarty Bartfast was gesticulating urgently at Ford and Arthur, and shouting at them as the three of them gradually converged on his ship, still parked behind the sight screens, and still apparently unnoticed by the crowd stampeding past it, who presumably had enough of their own problems to cope with at that time. They've garble, warble, farble, shouted Slarty Bartfast in his thin, tremulous voice. What did he say? panted Ford as he elbowed his way onwards. Arthur shook his head. They've something or other, he said. They've table, warble, farble, shouted Slarty Bartfast again. Ford and Arthur shook their heads at each other. It sounds urgent, said Arthur. He stopped and shouted. What? They've garble, warble, fashes, cried Slarty Bartfast, still waving at them. He says, said Arthur, that they've taken the ashes. That is what I think he says. They ran on. The, said Ford, ashes, said Arthur, tersely. The burnt remains of a cricket stump. It's a trophy. That, he was panting, is apparently what they have come and taken. He shook his head very slightly as if he was trying to get his brain to settle down lower in his skull. Strange thing to want to tell us, snapped Ford. Strange thing to take. Strange ship. They had arrived at it. The second strangest thing about the ship was watching the somebody else's problem field at work. They could now clearly see the ship for what it was simply because they knew it was there. It was quite apparent, however, that nobody else could. This wasn't because it was actually invisible or anything hyper-impossible like that. The technology involved in making anything invisible is so infinitely complex that 999,999,999,999 times out of a billion, it is much simpler and more effective just to take the thing away and do without it. The ultra-famous Scientomagician Ephrafax of Wug once bet his life that, given a year, he could render the great mega-mountain Magramel entirely invisible. Having spent most of the year jiggling around with immense Luxo-valves and refracto-nullifiers and spectra and bypass-omatics, he realised, with nine hours to go, that he wasn't going to make it. So, he and his friends, and his friends' friends, and his friends' friends' friends, and his friends' 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 friends, and some rather less good friends of theirs who happened to own a major stellar trucking company, put in what is now widely recognised as being the hardest night's work in history. And, sure enough, on the following day, Magramel was no longer visible. Ephrafax lost his bet and therefore his life, simply because some pedantic adjudicating official noticed a. that when walking around the area that Magramel ought to be in he didn't trip over or break his nose on anything, and b. a suspicious-looking extra moon. The somebody else's problem field is much simpler and more effective, and what is more can be run for over a hundred years on a single torch battery. This is because it relies on people's natural predisposition not to see anything they don't want to, weren't expecting or can't explain.
If Ephrafax had painted the mountain pink and erected a cheap and simple somebody else's problem field on it, then people would have walked past the mountain, round it, even over it, and simply never have noticed that the thing was there. And this is precisely what was happening with Slarty Bartfast's ship. It wasn't pink, but if it had been, that would have been the least of its visual problems and people were simply ignoring it like anything. The most extraordinary thing about it was that it looked only partly like a spaceship, with guidance fins, rocket engines and escape hatches and so on, and a great deal like a small, upended Italian bistro. Ford and Arthur gazed up at it with wonderment and deeply offended sensibilities. Yes, I, I know, said Slarty Bartfast, hurrying up to them at that point, breathless and agitated, but, but there is a reason. Come, we must go. The ancient nightmare has come again. Doom confronts us all. We must leave at once. I fancy somewhere sunny, said Ford. Ford and Arthur followed Slarty Bartfast into the ship and were so perplexed by what they saw inside it that they were totally unaware of what happened next outside. A spaceship, yet another one, but this one sleek and silver, descended from the sky onto the pitch without fuss, its long legs unlocking in a smooth ballet of technology. It landed gently. It extended a short ramp. A tall, grey-green figure marched briskly out and approached the small knot of people who were gathered in the centre of the pitch, tending to the casualties of the recent bizarre massacre. It moved people aside with quiet, understated authority and came at last to a man lying in a desperate pool of blood, clearly now beyond the reach of any earthly medicine, breathing, coughing his last. The figure knelt down quietly beside him. Arthur Philip Diodat, asked the figure. The man, with horrified confusion in his eyes, nodded feebly. You're a no-good Dumbo nothing, whispered the creature. I thought you should know that before you went. Chapter 5 Important Facts from Galactic History Number 2 Reproduced from the Sidereal Daily Mentioner's Book of Popular Galactic History since this galaxy began, vast civilizations have risen and fallen, risen and fallen, risen and fallen so often that it's quite tempting to think that life in the galaxy must be A, something akin to seasick, space-sick, time-sick, history-sick or some such thing, and B, stupid. Chapter 6 It seemed to Arthur as if the whole sky suddenly just stood aside and let them through. It seemed to him that the atoms of his brain and the atoms of the cosmos were streaming through each other. It seemed to him that he was blown on the wind of the universe, and that the wind was him. It seemed to him that he was one of the thoughts of the universe, and that the universe was a thought of his. It seemed to the people at Lord's Cricket Ground that another North London restaurant had just come and gone as they so often do, and that this was somebody else's problem. What happened? whispered Arthur in considerable awe. "'We took off,' said Slarty Bartfast. Arthur lay in startled stillness on the acceleration couch. He wasn't certain whether he had just got space sickness or religion. "'Nice mover,' said Ford, in an unsuccessful attempt to disguise the degree to which he had been impressed by what Slarty Bartfast's ship had just done. Shame about the decor. For a moment or two, the old man didn't reply. He was staring at the instruments with the air of one who was trying to convert Fahrenheit to centigrade in his head whilst his house is burning down. Then his brow cleared, and he stared for a moment at the wide, panoramic screen in front of him, 
which displayed a bewildering complexity of stars streaming like silver threads around them. His lips moved as if he was trying to spell something. Suddenly his eyes darted in alarm back to his instruments, but then his expression merely subsided into a steady frown. He looked back up at the screen. He felt his own pulse. His frown deepened for a moment. Then he relaxed. It's a mistake to try and understand machines, he said. They only worry me. What did you say? Decor, said Ford. Pity about it. Deep in the fundamental heart of mind and universe, said Slarty Bartfast, there is a reason. Ford glanced sharply around. He clearly thought this was taking an optimistic view of things. The interior of the flight deck was dark green, dark red, dark brown, cramped and moodily lit. Inexplicably, the resemblance to a small Italian bistro had failed to end at the hatchway. Small pools of light picked out pot plants, glazed tiles and all sorts of little unidentifiable brass things. Raffia-wrapped bottles lurked hideously in the shadows. The instruments which had occupied Slarty Bartfast's attention seemed to be mounted in the bottom of bottles which were set in concrete. Ford reached out and touched it. Fake concrete. Plastic. Fake bottles set in fake concrete. The fundamental heart of mind and universe can take a running jump, he thought to himself. This is rubbish. On the other hand, it could not be denied that the way the ship had moved made the heart of gold seem like an electric pram. He swung himself off the couch. He brushed himself down. He looked at Arthur, who was singing quietly to himself. He looked at the screen and recognised nothing. He looked at Slarty Bartfast. How far did we just travel? he said. About, said Slarty Bartfast, about two-thirds of the way across the galactic disk, I would say, roughly, yes, roughly two-thirds, I think. It's a strange thing, said Arthur, quietly, that the further and faster one travels across the universe, the more one's position in it seems to be largely immaterial, and one is filled with a profound, or rather emptied, of a... Yes, very strange, said Ford. Where are we going? We are going, said Slarty Bartfast, to confront an ancient nightmare of the universe. And where are you going to drop us off? I will need your help. Tough. Look, there's somewhere you can take us where we can have fun. I'm trying to think of it. We can get drunk and maybe listen to some extremely evil music. Hold on, I'll look it up. He dug out his copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and zipped through those parts of the index primarily concerned with sex and drugs and rock and roll. A curse has arisen from the mists of time, said Slarty Bartfast. Yes, I expect so, said Ford. Hey, he said, lighting accidentally on one particular reference entry. Eccentrica Gallambits. Did you ever meet her? The triple-breasted whore of Eroticon 6. Some people say her erogenous zone starts some four miles from her actual body. Me, I disagree. I say five. A curse said Slarty Bartfast, which will engulf the galaxy in fire and destruction and possibly bring the universe to a premature doom. I mean it, he added. Sounds like a bad time, said Ford. With luck, I'll be drunk enough not to notice. Here, he said, stabbing his finger at the screen of the guide, would be a really wicked place to go, and I think we should. What do you say, Arthur? Stop mumbling mantras and pay attention. There's important stuff you're missing here. Arthur pushed himself up from his couch and shook his head. Where are we going? he said. 
to confront an ancient knight. Can it, said Ford. Arthur, we are going out into the galaxy to have some fun. Is that an idea you can cope with? What's Slarty Bartfast looking so anxious about, said Arthur. Nothing, said Ford. Doom, said Slarty Bartfast. Come, he added with sudden authority. There is much I must show and tell you. He walked towards a green wrought-iron spiral staircase set incomprehensibly in the middle of the flight deck and started to ascend. Arthur, with a frown, followed. Ford slung the guide sullenly back into his satchel. My doctor says that I have a malformed public duty gland and a natural deficiency in moral fibre, he muttered to himself, and that I am therefore excused from saving universes. Nevertheless, he stomped up the stairs behind them. What they found upstairs was just stupid, or so it seemed, and Ford shook his head, buried his face in his hands, and slumped against a pot plant, crushing it against the wall. The central computational area, said Slarty Bartfast, unperturbed, this is where every calculation affecting the ship in any way is performed. Yes, I know what it looks like, but it is in fact a complex four-dimensional topographical map of a series of highly complex mathematical functions. It looks like a joke, said Arthur. I know what it looks like, said Slarty Bartfast, and went into it. As he did so, Arthur had a sudden vague flash of what it might mean, but he refused to believe it. The universe could not possibly work like that, he thought. Cannot possibly. That, he thought to himself, would be as absurd as... as absurd as... He terminated that line of thinking. Most of the really absurd things he could think of had already happened. And this was one of them. It was a large glass cage, or box. In fact, a room. In it was a table, a long one. Around it were gathered about a dozen chairs of the Bentwood style. On it was a tablecloth, a grubby red and white check tablecloth, scarred with the occasional cigarette burn, each presumably at a precisely calculated mathematical position. And on the tablecloth sat some dozen half-eaten Italian meals, hedged about with half-eaten breadsticks and half-drunk glasses of wine, and toyed with listlessly by robots. It was all completely artificial. The robot customers were attended by a robot waiter, a robot wine waiter, and a robot maitre d'. The furniture was artificial, the tablecloth artificial, and each particular piece of food was clearly capable of exhibiting all the mechanical characteristics of, say, a bolo sobrezo without actually being one. And all participated in a little dance together, a complex routine involving the manipulation of menus, bill pads, wallets, Checkbooks, credit cards, watches, pencils and paper napkins, which seemed to be hovering constantly on the edge of violence, but never actually getting anywhere. Slarty Bartfast hurried in, and then appeared to pass the time of day quite idly with the maitre d', whilst one of the customer robots, an autorary, slid slowly under the table, mentioning what he intended to do to some guy over some girl. Slarty Bartfast took over the seat which had been thus vacated, and passed a shrewd eye over the menu. The tempo of the routine round the table seemed somehow imperceptibly to quicken. Arguments broke out, people attempted to prove things on napkins, they waved fiercely at each other and attempted to examine each other's pieces of chicken. The waiter's hand began to move on the bill pad more quickly than a human hand could manage, and then more quickly than a human eye could follow. The pace accelerated, 
Soon, an extraordinary and insistent politeness overwhelmed the group, and seconds later it seemed that a moment of consensus was suddenly achieved. A new vibration thrilled through the ship. Slarty Bartfast emerged from the glass room. Bistromathics, he said, the most powerful computational force known to parascience. Come to the room of informational illusions. He swept past and carried them bewildered in his wake. Chapter 7 The bistromathic drive is a wonderful new method of crossing vast interstellar distances without all that dangerous mucking about with improbability factors. Bistromathics itself is simply a revolutionary new way of understanding the behaviour of numbers. Just as Einstein observed that time was not an absolute but depended on the observer's movement in space, and that space was not an absolute but depended on the observer's movement in time, so it is now realised that numbers are not absolute but depend on the observer's movement in restaurants. The first non-absolute number is the number of people for whom the table is reserved. This will vary during the course of the first three telephone calls to the restaurant and then bear no apparent relation to the number of people who actually turn up or to the number of people who subsequently join them after the show, match, party, gig or to the number of people who leave when they see who else has turned up. The second non-absolute number is the given time of arrival, which is now known to be one of those most bizarre of concepts, a reciprocal exclusion, a number whose existence can only be defined as being anything other than itself. In other words, the given time of arrival is the one moment of time at which it is impossible that any member of the party will arrive. Reciproverse exclusions now play a vital part in many branches of maths, including statistics and accountancy, and also form the basic equations used to engineer the somebody else's problem field. The third, and most mysterious piece of non-absoluteness of all, lies in the relationship between the number of items on the bill, the cost of each item, the number of people at the table, and what they are each prepared to pay for. The number of people who have actually brought any money is only a sub-phenomenon in this field. The baffling discrepancies which used to occur at this point remained uninvestigated for centuries simply because no one took them seriously. They were, at the time, put down to such things as politeness, rudeness, meanness, flashness, tiredness, emotionality, or the lateness of the hour, and completely forgotten about on the following morning. They were never tested under laboratory conditions, of course, because they never occurred in laboratories, not in reputable laboratories at least. And so it was only with the advent of pocket computers that the startling truth became finally apparent. And it was this. Numbers written on restaurant bills within the confines of restaurants do not follow the same mathematical laws as numbers written on any other pieces of paper in any other parts of the universe. This single fact took the scientific world by storm. It completely revolutionised it. So many mathematical conferences got held in such good restaurants that many of the finest minds of a generation died of obesity and heart failure, and the science of maths was put back by years. Slowly, however, the implications of the idea began to be understood. To begin with, it had been too stark, too crazy, too much what the man in the street would have said, oh yes, I could have told you that about. Then some phrases like interactive subjectivity frameworks were invented and everybody was able to relax and get on with it. 
The small groups of monks who were taken up hanging around the major research institutes singing strange chants to the effect that the universe was only a figment of its own imagination were eventually given a street theatre grant and went away. <laughs>